The pages of human history are filled with the quest to secure a place of privilege. Emperors, pharaohs, kings establish dynasties that they may have power and privilege. Most nations tell the story of an ethnic group that rises to a place of privilege within that particular society. Our nation, European settlers, secured that place. They secured a place of privilege over the Native Americans in pretty much dictated terms. Eventually over enslaved Africans. It's a story of many nations. I have a I had a, met a friend in a Dutch man from uh, South Africa. He told me that his children's school records were stamped with the phrase, previously privileged, speaking of their status under apartheid. Sadly, at times, the thirst to secure a privileged status devolves into genocide and ethnic cleansing. To gain the place of privilege... And that desire of gaining privileged status is also witnessed on a lot of smaller fields of play, isn't it? It might just be the CEO who earns the privilege of the corner office, the privilege of securing that place where everybody wants to work. Or it might be the lead actor in the high school play who just happens to be the daughter of the director of the play. Or maybe it's just any number of positions, really, of seniority and education and business and the like, places of privilege, some privilege that is gained, and what an interest there is in that. Now, securing a place of privilege is also a foundational consideration in religion. Many who secure privilege in this world are corrupt people who keep their position by evil means. But there is, it would seem, some, something innately noble about seeking a privileged position in relationship with the divine. What could be wrong with seeking favor with God? What could be wrong about identifying with other people who also seek favor with God? And who in the history of mankind could lay any more legitimate claim to such privilege as the nation of Israel? What a glorious history was Israel's. What a glorious history of spiritual privilege indeed. God's election of Abraham. The promise to give to him a land. The promise to give to him an offspring through whom every nation on earth would be blessed. And there was circumcision. This sign of the covenant given to the Israelites that would identify them as God's people. There was the deliverance from Egypt crushing the power and the privilege of Pharaoh in the process. Then there was the giving of the Mosaic Law. No nation had ever experienced anything like this. But God coming down on Mount Sinai and giving to His chosen nation His laws, etched in stone by His own finger, so to speak. And there was King David and all the glories of his kingdom, but the covenant promises to David that this people would be blessed and that there would be dominion of Israel over the earth, in fact, ultimately through the greater son of David. Israel is God's chosen people. Israel is a highly privileged status And there was nothing wrong with any of that 
It was the blessing, the electing grace of God in Abraham's life and to all of his offspring. And in some manner, I hope it is your quest to gain a privileged status with God as well, in a different route, in a different way, but to be able to say, God is my Father. That's claiming a great privilege. Could one be greater? To say, I am His child. He answers my prayers. He teaches me His ways. I have an inheritance with Him in glory. What more noble pursuit can a mortal undertake in this dying world than to be in the position where God is my Father? But as with everything and every one of us, there's much mischief in how we think about our privileged status with God. As the Apostle Paul writes the epistle to the Romans, his word to the Jews highlights this mischief. The danger that he labors to help them see is not directly applicable to any of us as Gentiles. A Gentile is just someone who's not a Jew. It's not directly applicable to us as we come today to Romans chapter 2. But there is a necessary application that each of us must grasp or we will find we have no standing with God at all through all eternity. How do you view your place of privilege with God? Do you perceive it? Do you understand it? How are you, under, how are you looking at it? This text before us today in Romans chapter 2 is very instructive. We think to just get a running head start again from chapter 1 and verse 18 through 32, the condemnation of the Gentile world in rebellion against God. Jewish readers at this point, as Paul closes out chapter 1, as we understand the place today, as he closes it out, they're rejoicing. They're saying, yes, this is sounding of the truth of the holiness of God and the responsibilities that God's people have to live a distinctive life in obedience to Him and in, in, to His Word. They are rejoicing in this recital. They are rejoicing, let's put it in our day as Gentiles, as we might rejoice if someone was kind of ripping on a whole group of child abusers and drug uh Addicts, what, what's the word? Uh, uh, the guys who give the drugs. <laughs> what is it? Dealers. There it is. The word lost me. I lost the word. The word lost me. The word's given up on me here. Drug dealers. I mean, if you have a group of child abusers and drug dealers and corrupt politicians and you put them all together and somebody's saying, these people are wrong, they're doing these things, they're hurting our children, they're abusing their office, this kind of thing. We, we go, yes, that's right. We agree with that. That's where the Jews are as they're listening to Paul in Romans 1, and then he turns the tables on them. It says to one, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It may look differently, you may do it differently, but on some level, in some way, you too fall short of the glory of God. 
We know, verse 2, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. We rejoice in this, but do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? There are those reading this, and I believe it's a bit different from some interpreters, but I believe I'm with those who would say he's talking to Jews here. Not to O man just in generic sense. He's moving toward verse 17. He's talking to Jews and he's talking to those who believe they have a privileged status with God. And in some sense they do, but behind that privileged status, they're failing to see themselves. Do you suppose when you sin that God's going to look at you differently because you are part of the chosen nation of Israel? It is not possession of God's law that justifies someone. It is obedience to the law that renders one righteous before God. Verse 12 of chapter 2, For all who have sinned without the law, Gentiles, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. He goes on to say what would be very troubling to most Jewish readers, and that is that a Gentile might actually follow their conscience and honor the Word of God better than you do it, when you have, though you have the Word of God. As I mentioned last week, I believe he's talking theoretically here in verse 13, when he says, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. I say that because he's moving toward the conclusion of chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. No one will be justified that way. That's how you're justified. That's the bar that you must clear. And the only thing that you can do is be obedient to the law, but no one clears the bar. That's what he's working toward. So I think it's theoretical here but before he gets to that he labors to capture his jewish audience who were given to rely upon their privileged status to assure them of final salvation in god's presence specifically in verses 17 to 24 paul hammers away at the jewish assumption that there is eternal security merely in possessing the law The fact that God gave us His law. He spoke to us. He told us what was right and wrong. In that, just in the conversation, God is placing us in a place of privilege. And in a sense, He was. Paul's aiming at here the sense in which that's not the case. He wants to bring the, the Jews to see this. So in verses 17 to 24, he exhorts his Jewish readers to concede this point. The fact that you possess God's law does not mean you keep it. Again, remember he's talking directly to Jews in this setting. He's not talking to us here in our setting directly, but there is clearly a point of application with us today. But take it in. The fact that you possess God's law does not mean that you keep God's law. He brings out, first of all, in verses 17 to 20, the fact that the Jews indeed do possess the light of God's law. Verse 17 of chapter 2. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, he's going to give a whole string of ideas here of the Jews and what they would agree with. You call yourself a Jew. That's 
They do, and that's a good thing. You rely upon the law. It's a reference to the law of Moses. And again, they do, and that's a good thing. You boast in God. They do, and that is exactly what they should do, boast in God. Now, it's in the sense of praising Him, of magnifying His name. That's a good thing. God is great and greatly to be praised. Verse 18, you know His will. Again, that's a good thing. You approve what is excellent, a reference to what is morally excellent, what finds God's approval. Because you are instructed from the law, that's why you approve what is excellent, because you have God's word and you're learning to apply it. And if you're assured, verse 18 rather, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed in the law, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, again, this is not a bad thing. Each of these phrases pointing to the role of Jews as teachers of the moral truth to Gentiles. It speaks here of those who are foolish, verse 20. and You're an instructor of the foolish, that is the morally foolish. A teacher of children, probably of proselytes, of those who had come to conversion and to walk with the Jewish people. Verse 20, you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and in truth. They do, and that is a good thing. These are not bad things. These are not small things. Paul is not being sarcastic here. You have all of this going for you in your privileged status in relationship with God. God has chosen you, Israel, to be a light to the morally corrupt of this world. You're to speak for God. You're to represent God. You are to speak to them my word. All of this is true and it is good. It is a blessing. And then he turns the focus on them. Not on who they are and their privileged status. The Jews indeed possess the light of God's law. But secondly, now at verse 21, he brings out this point that the Jews indeed break God's law. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Why does Paul use these three sins? We really don't know. Why he chooses them, stealing and adultery and the robbing of temples. We don't know if there's some historical background to this or not. And by the way, I think the robbing of temples is talking about pagan temples, not the temple singular in Jerusalem. But it's so confusing why he uses these three that... Some commentators actually go after and just say it's all figurative. He's just speaking figuratively, particularly of this robbing of temples. I'm more persuaded that Paul is saying, you rightly condemn paganism. But when you rob temples, thinking you have immunity to do so because they are filled with gifts to false gods, you prove your own greed. In a roundabout way, you participate in the racket of idolatry when you steal from a temple, however they did that, it would have brought conviction in that day. All that aside, Paul's point is so very clear, verse 23. You who boast in the law, 
and they should. But you who boast in the law, you who celebrate it, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, here he quotes Isaiah the prophet, verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul argues that Israel is a hypocritical teacher whose sinful ways bring dishonor to God's name. The Gentiles say, because of you, if these are God's holy people, who needs God? These are people saying we have privilege with God because of who we are, because of how we relate to Him. Who needs it? That's how the Gentiles are responding to your breaking of the law of God. Now let's stop here for a few moments to think. What is Paul doing? What's he up to? What's his agenda here? Put it simply, he's trying to make his Jewish readers squirm. He's trying to make them uncomfortable. Now, the application is not direct, but as a religious community, indeed as the people of God, we also are educated in God's Word around here. And the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul's words surely intends for us to recognize that our possession of the Bible, our knowledge of the Scriptures, does not mean that we honor it. And of course we should. But there's a more fundamental warning for us here. I mean, it's certainly that, be doers of the Word. But studying the Bible helps us see how very blind and foolish and wicked the world is. It can't do anything else. If you're reading the Bible, you're going to see that. If you're studying with any effort at all, it is going to throw into stark relief the way in which our world rebels against the Creator, His design, His purposes, His glory. You, you can't read it any other way. You can't see it any other way. That's going to come to your mind. And as we read the Scriptures, we realize that much of what the world celebrates and promotes and loves is nothing short of an assault on the honor of God. It's an assault on His holiness. It's an assault on His sovereign authority. We see that in Scripture. It shines a light on the dirt that is everywhere in this world. And we're right to see it that way. But here's where the mischief comes. Here is where we need to be so careful. We must be careful never to think that recognizing the sin of a lost world in light of Scripture is our salvation. To have that moral perception that God's Word gives, to be able to judge others rightly according to Scripture, is not salvation. I read the Bible. I see how people rebel against God. That indicates I belong to God. I'm one of His children. No, it doesn't. Paul would warn you against that thinking. Studying God's Word is not the same as obeying God's Word. Properly judging the sins of others never makes us right with God. It doesn't certainly make us a right judge of our own sin. In fact, I think we can infer from Paul's words, 
I'm moving forward in the book in this statement, but I'm inferring it from what he said here. Take it to heart. I think we can infer from Paul's words that every sin you condemn in unbelievers is a sin you yourself have committed. Or at least are capable of committing, given the circumstances. Every sin you condemn in unbelievers is a sin you yourself have committed or are capable of committing, given the circumstances. Now that does not in any way dismiss our labors in knowing what God's Word teaches and developing in discernment to be able to rightly detect and judge where people fail that Word. But it does caution us that we also fall short of the glory of God. And that's where we must focus as we read His Word. Possession of the Word is so vital. Studying the Word is so essential. But knowing God's Word and keeping it are not the same thing. And we must never forget along these same lines that in our own strength, we are as lost as any sinner ever was or ever could be. And those who came to saving faith in Christ in childhood don't have this long history of sin and this stark contrast of change that conversion brought into your life. Never, ever forget this. You were as lost as the worst of sinners. It took every bit of the power of God to bring you to saving light as the worst of sinners who is converted. Only God's grace distinguishes us as His children. It is by grace alone that we are saved. So, the fact that you possess God's law does not mean that you keep it, Paul says to his Jewish readers. And secondly, the fact that you participate in the sign of the covenant does not mean it possesses your heart. You possess the sign, it doesn't necessarily possess you just because of that sign. And here he turns to a discussion of circumcision. You're thinking in Jewish terms of the law and circumcision as the privileged people of God. He's hitting on all cylinders here, on everything that was near and dear to those who were of Israelite descent of the Jewish faith. First of all, he says here in this section, verses 25 and following, participating in the sign of the covenant is irrelevant if you don't obey the law. It's this point in verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It's really difficult for us to perceive how influential the rite of circumcision was for the Jews. To circumcise Jewish men, to thereby identify with the people of God all daughters born through those men, was an unprecedented blessing. Circumcision was a physical rite that marked one forever as a member of God's covenant people. Beth and I were in a store here a few days ago, and the guy checking us out it was busy and i wish i could have talked to him I, we just couldn't it was a press of people but he had a tattoo down his whole arm here that said jesus 
And the tattooed down the other forearm this way said, saves. And he had his long sleeve sweater rolled up. Thought, now, there was a day that guy went into a parlor and he really made a commitment. I mean, you're wearing that for life. And I realize it's possible they say somehow to take it off. But this guy, this was thick enough. I mean, you guys have to amputate his arms. He was making a commitment. He was marked and is marked for life with Jesus saves. And somewhere, I hope he was in full possession of his thinking, but somewhere he said, I'm going to do that to stand for Christ. It illustrates somewhat what circumcision was like. You're marked for life. There's no reversal. You're different. You're unusual. The rabbis taught, in fact, that at heaven's gate, no circumcised man would ever be turned away. I've not, I don't know rabbinic writings enough to answer this question. I'm not sure what they did with women on that. But those statements are there that basically you come to heaven's gate, never will you be turned away if you're circumcised male. So for the Jews of Paul's day, what he has said here in verse 25 is radical. For circumcision is of value if you obey the law, but if you don't, it becomes as if you're uncircumcised. And you say, well, well, that makes sense to me. Why does it not make sense to the Jewish readers of Paul's day? Well, I think we could illustrate it for us in a way that would be helpful this way. You break a law of the land here in the United States as a citizen of the United States, and someone informs you, you broke the law, you're no longer a citizen of this country. We're going to deport you because you broke a law. And you say, wait a minute. I, I was born here. I am a citizen of the United States, or I have become legitimately a citizen of the United States if I was born elsewhere, but I'm a citizen of this nation. And it's wrong for me to break a law, but having broken a law, I'm still a nation of this citizen, a citizen of this nation. You feel that? It's kind of how the Jews would be reading this. Oh, I, I, we, we should obey the law all the time, but we're not going to. We break the law now and then. That does not mean we're no longer the chosen people of God. Paul is saying you're thinking about it all wrongly. If you don't obey the law, your circumcision is meaningless. He argues that it is an individual's obedience to the law, not one's corporate identity alone with Israel that is all important. And here he stretches his readers. Circumcision secures no pardon for those who break God's law, and it cannot shield a sinner from God's judgment. It's almost, it would be read in some ways, like Paul's changing the rules here. Well, he's not, actually he's not. What he's actually doing is bringing them to consider how God sees it. Paul would not use the U.S. citizen analogy that I've just drawn. But he might use a wedding ring. A wedding ring is a symbol of marital fidelity. But if the individual wearing that ring commits adultery, the symbol is pretty well useless. 
It might be a reminder to the covenant that has been made, but as this one lives in ongoing, unrepentant adultery, this wedding ring is really has no meaning at all. That's more the sense in which Paul is arguing. That's what he says God thinks of your sin. You've been circumcised. You've been identified with God's people, with the covenant that God cut with His people Israel, but it's not doing you any good. Because you break the law. You're disobedient to God. In fact, Paul continues, the opposite is also true. Again, shocking. Verse 26, So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? The law of God written on his conscience And even though he doesn't possess what God has said in his written word, there are times when Gentiles can obey the word that a Jew with the Bible doesn't. And in a sense, then, his obedience becomes circumcision. Verse 27, Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code, the Mosaic law, and circumcision, but you break the law. Again, I don't believe this is a reference to a Gentile Christian. There are those who would argue this point, that he's preparing them for Gentile believers. I think that's getting ahead of Paul where he's at in the argument. And those that are keeping score and reading commentaries and taking sides on that kind of thing, I keep following consistently where I'm at. I don't think he's here on Gentile belief. I don't think this is the new covenant written on the heart that he's there yet. He is getting there, though. And that's why the confusion. The written code is God's written word, and circumcision is the sign of the covenant with God, pushing us forward to the idea that obedience to the law is the only way to be justified. And where is he taking us beyond that? You can't do it. You won't make it. But it's still the bar that has to be cleared, and it's the way that it has to be cleared. All of the law in perfection, you have to clear it. You've got to jump over that hurdle. You won't. You can't. He's moving there. And I trust, Lord willing, next week we'll tie up that loose end which continues to stay untied uh, last week and this week. But notice then, secondly, participating in the sign of the covenant is irrelevant if you don't obey the law. Secondly, the true people of God are identified not by their corporate identity, but by transformed hearts. Verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Paul here again makes the radical claim that one's relationship with God is not grounded in a physical corporate identity. Rather, verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. It is a God thing. Verse 29, by seeking refuge in their national identity, by seeking assurance in their participation in the covenant God cut with Israel, the Jews were missing everything. A true relationship with God is an individual matter of the heart. Always has been. The death and resurrection of Jesus, we can say then, as Paul is working, out, working it out here, his death and resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ, marks the dawning of a new era 
the era of the Spirit. And the issue is now definitively what it had always been in principle, that God is not satisfied with external ritual. He looks on the heart. I don't think that is, there was a different way of salvation in the Old Testament. That's always the way it was. No one was ever saved by offering sacrifices, by being circumcised, ever. But these rituals were evidence of your obedience to God, of your trust in the Lord. And God changed hearts under the Old Covenant as He does under the New. But with the coming of Christ, this identity as the people of God through circumcision has been fulfilled in Christ. And the issue now, the spotlight now, is shining directly on the individual heart, Jew or Gentile. God gives His Spirit, verse 29 indicates, to transform the heart. So let me say again, the application to us is by no means direct. Our infant boys may be circumcised, but only as a matter of hygiene, of medical practice, not as a symbol of our covenant relationship with God. However, There is application in that we are here today with God's people, and we should be. This is good. It is honoring to God. Our corporate identity as the body of Christ is a really big thing in the New Testament. We don't want to minimize it in any way. And many of us have identified with Christ in believers' baptism. And this is right, and this is good. It is obedience to Christ. However, let's catch what we must hear. The Spirit warns us that we must never put our confidence in baptism itself to secure a privileged relationship with God. There are large swaths of the Christian world that teach that baptism removes original sin and confers grace upon the recipient so as to assure salvation on some level. Filled in differently by different communions, but this is a hope where many people place the confidence of their salvation. Now we as Baptistic people realize that baptism is a testimony to a changed heart. It is an appeal of the conscience to God, the person who's being baptized. But there is a warning here for us as well. Have you been baptized? Have you participated in the rite that identifies you with the new covenant in which Christ changes hearts. Have you proclaimed the fact that Christ Jesus died to pay the penalty of your sin, that He rose from the dead to defeat death, and you stood in the waters of baptism to say, I am a follower of Christ, and I identify with that message, buried with Him in baptism, raised with Him to new life. Have you identified as His follower, united with His death, united with His resurrection, yielded to His Lordship for His glory? That experience is invigorating. Who has forgotten the day of their baptism? If you stood as a believer in Christ, you'll never forget it. 
It's an invigorating moment. It's a beautiful moment. It's an act of obedience to God, never to be forgotten. But let's also never forget this. Baptism saves no one. Baptism saves no one. Only Jesus Christ saves. Only Christ can transform the heart. Now again, as we look at this text, we have a lot of loose ends. So much of the conclusion of where Paul is going, we've not hit yet. He's leading us to that conclusion. I trust we'll arrive at it next week. But he's laid out the case that God's wrath is justly revealed from heaven against all sinners. That all have sinned, Jews and Gentiles, and that message reaches us here today in this gathering. And we must again take it to heart. I fall short of the glory of God. Possessing the Bible, being part of a religiously educated group, following the Lord in believer's baptism, identifying with the new covenant salvation that I have in Christ, none of that saves. I've got to come to terms with my sin and my breaking of the law of God and the failure to obey His Word. God judges then, not on the basis of religious knowledge or pedigree, but on an individual's obedience. That's what is judged. And Paul is leading us to the conclusion that this is not a general obedience, like the illustration of the U.S. citizen. I'm a U.S. citizen, I break the law, but I remain a U.S. citizen. I might be punished for it, but I'm, I, I mean, not that. It's not a general obedience. It's a perfect obedience. The only way to be justified as a sinner before a holy God by obeying His will is to obey His will perfectly. He's actually leading us, then, in this writing, not to a place of privilege, but to a place of utter despair in ourselves. And this is why when we stand in the waters of baptism, we do not bear witness to our Christian heritage. We may mention it. We don't need to. We do not express trust in our church attendance or in our Bible studies. We do not say, I place my hope in the efficacy of these waters to save me. We never say those things. We place our hope in Christ alone. For He alone can save. And thus our privileged position is not earned by works of righteousness, but by faith in the Christ who gives us His righteous standing. And that standing entered by faith is the highest of all privileges. There is a righteousness from God that is by faith. And we don't grasp that until we see the depths of our depravity. Paul has brought the general Gentile world to the bar of God and found them hopeless sinners. He's brought the Jew now to the bar of God and found, despite all of the privileged status, hopeless sinners. 
And as we have opportunity to move into chapter 3, he's going to bring the whole world capturing everything together and he's going to say, we fall short of the glory of God. But when you swing that door wide to one direction, double doors, and you swing that one wide to say honestly and openly, we are wholly lost in sin. It allows you to open the other door wide to let the light of the glory of Christ's saving grace shine through the door. And no one is getting anywhere by minimizing the depths of our sin. So don't take the Bible and point at the world and think that saves you. Don't follow Christ in the waters of baptism and think that that saves you. What saves us is Christ alone. And maybe you're here today depending, honestly, on your religious knowledge. Maybe you honestly are depending. And there, there's, there's some sense of discomfort that you're feeling right now. It may be the Spirit of God working within your heart to realize that your religious effort, your baptism as an infant perhaps, is really not what's necessary to enter into a right relationship with God. And I would affirm to you that your religious experiences and your baptism does nothing to grant you the privilege to say God is your Father. What you need is a transformed heart. What you must have is a recognition on the one hand, of the depths of your sin and your absolute incapacity to please God in your own strength. That then opens the door to the good news of the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. A status, a standing, a privilege that is a gift. Through and through. For those who know Christ as Savior... Don't pass up this moment. Don't pass it up. I, I talk to you, you, you believe Christ is your Savior. Don't pass this moment up. There is an inherent trap in privilege. And knowing it's good to be in a privileged position with God, it's a right thing to pursue. There's a trap in it, and that's that we can look to the benefits of the privilege and think that that means that we are right with Him and you're not. Don't let this moment pass. It's a chance to face it squarely. We have had people in this congregation who have walked as Christians for many years and came to a place that they realized their Christianity was merely external. It was having done the right things, having believed the truths of God's Word, but they came to recognize after many years that their heart had never been changed. And I can think of more than one example where those people changed. And when the light of the Gospel dawned upon their heart, they were made new. I may speak to no one here in this moment about this matter, but I wonder, I wonder, is it possible 
that you have professed faith in Christ, you have followed him in believer's baptism, you are studying his word and knowing it, and your faith in Christ is all external. He's not yet by his spirit changed you. He's not filled you with his presence. He's not redeemed you spiritually. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of a transformed heart. I call you to consider it again. Not to doubt your salvation unnecessarily, but to really test it. Am I trusting in Christ alone? Has He saved me by His grace? This is the crucial question. On what do I base my position of privilege in Jesus?